Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Plenty of people have registered their opinions with the government about you know, seeking to have Section 40 dropped. But, you know, the chattering classes in the UK, it's all about Brexit and Donald Trump, not about press freedom. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. Today we're talking about press freedom in the digital age. On the phone with me today is Drew Cullen, editor-in-chief of The Register, a British technology news site. Welcome, Drew. Hello, Michael. So, first of all, tell me about The Register. How would you describe that as a publication? And who is your audience? So, The Register is a tech website. We're online only. We've been publishing on the internet since 1997. As you said, we're a British publication, but, but that means we're British owned. We're actually, we have a global reach thanks to the internet. In fact, most of our readers are outside the UK and the biggest number of readers we have are based in America. So tech, by that, um, is a very broad, broad brush. We concentrate on the B2B enterprise side of the market. So we write about the doings of the IBMs and Microsofts and HPEs and not so much iPhone reviews or Xbox shenanigans. Okay, so how did you become involved in the register? You uh, have a journalistic background or a technology background? I have a business journalist background. The two original founders of the register set up a email newsletter in 1994, which they published every two weeks in their spare time. They had an idea to commercialize it. I had worked with one of those founders. His name was Mike McGee. And I had an idea for a different publication, and I approached him to come and work for me on this. And he said, why don't, you, um, why don't we join forces? And he invited me to pitch my work into the register. That was in 1997, which was the first week that we went onto the internet. And from there, well, today we're, uh, we have 50 staff, of which news desk of 21, 22 people based in three countries, which is the US, the UK, and Sydney and Australia. Okay. Well, the reason we're talking today is there's a controversy that has emerged about something that the, the UK government is doing around media regulation. I guess the, the law that they're, they're talking about is Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act. Can you sort of talk about the, the background of this? Well, 
it dates back to 2007. There was a, a phone hacking scandal involving the News of the World, which was a Murdoch-owned newspaper, which was published on Sunday, um, Britain's biggest newspaper. And its royal correspondent was using a very, very simple hacking technique to listen into messages left on mobile phones owned by members of the royal family. The news of the world said this is an isolated incident and no more was said about it. The Guardian thought different and it did a big investigation and it uncovered hundreds and hundreds of examples of this technique deployed by the news of the world and later transpired by some of the other big popular British newspapers. The final straw was in 2011, Guardian revealed that the phone of a teenage girl who'd been murdered in 2002, her name is Millie Dowler, it's a very, very notorious case in the UK, had been accessed by the news of the world. This prompted a wave of revulsion. And in response, the government of the day set up an inquiry to look at the culture and practices of the UK press. This is called the Leveson Inquiry. Are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, so what then happened was that Leveson inquiries in the UK are judicial, we're called judicial inquiries. So this is a, a prominent judge or barrister, I'm not quite sure, who led this the inquiry. Leveson's major conclusion was that the way that the press regulated itself in the UK was inadequate and that it should be replaced by a, a so-called independent body, which was backed by force of law. So actually turning this from a self-regulating sector into something that was ruled by statutes. So Section 40 was enacted, was not enacted, was the little bomb that was placed into law, which just hasn't been enacted yet. And the major issue with press freedom here is that it insists that, that publications should join a press regulator and which should then be able to do arbitration with people who consider that they're victims of press abuse. That sounds very, very, very innocuous. However, the provision is that if you don't sign up to a regulator, you will, and it goes to court, you're responsible for all costs. Even if you, you, uh, your report is exactly, completely in the right. So that puts a huge huge financial burden upon the press, potentially, and in effect, it is a gagging law, which is an unintended consequence of the legislation. Let's sort of unpack some of this. I, I guess the intention of requiring a media outlets to be part of a, a regulating body and putting this, you know, statutes are in like this is gives sort of teeth to it the sort of forcing them you need to be a member of this and it and if they're not then they're, this is in a roundabout way is is a punishment for that 
So as far as the requirement, I mean, is everybody required to belong to a regular regulatory body or is this something that's quote unquote voluntary? This is voluntary. What used to be the case was the press had its own body called the Press Complaints Commission, and it was thought by Leveson to be toothless. So in response, the big publishing companies, they set up another organization. It's called IPSO, which is the Independent Press Standards Organization. I think I've got that right. And I think there's something like 2,000 or so publications are members of that. We're not. It's, there are three classes of members, which are like the national newspapers, magazines, uh, the traditional, traditional uh, outlets. But anyway, so Ipso, the issue that which its critics would have is that it is still, it is not independent of press. It is acting as a standards maker and as arbitrator. And that seems to be, a, there seems to be a governance issue there, according to its critics. However, another regulator or would-be regulator has appeared, is called Impress, which was founded by trenchant critic of UK tabloid press practices, and it has secured official status as the UK's press regulator. A complicating factor is that members of this Impress are known hostile critics to many of the major publishing houses. And furthermore, it has been bankrolled to date by a very prominent businessman in the UK called Max Mosley. Max Mosley made his fortune working in Formula One. He's the son of Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the British Union of Fascists in the 20s and 30s. He got caught up in, he was embroiled in a press story which revealed that he'd hired five prostitutes for some sadomasochistic session. And ever since then, he has been banned um, actions against the press. So that is, this is, has been regarded with horror by what in America people call the mainstream media. So that's the state of play today. Okay. So I guess what, what you're telling me is that these governing bodies are not, they're not associated with, they're not run by the government, but they, statute is pretty much giving them teeth to, you know, to tell you guys what to do. And, and the fact is they're not independent press run organizations or but they're, they're something else. That they're... Well, so IPSO is a press-run organization, okay. and asking people to regulate themselves uh, or adjudicate uh, is perhaps is a governance issue. Impress is is the only one that has been is recognised by the government to date, and it is founded by people who are profoundly at odds with the press in the UK. So having regulators uh, uh, who are hostile uh, to, um, to 
uh, the industry, which is is going far too far the other way. The way it works in the UK is that bodies get formed by what's called royal charter. And that's, you know, universe, this may be how you found a university or a city, but what it does is it sets up an organization with, and it details their responsibilities, their terms of reference, and their powers. So the royal charter has a government, a small government organization called, uh, it's called something like the Press Recognition Panel. And that is the mechanism by which the government, maybe albeit at arm's length, it's, an, it's supposedly an independent body, maintains its regulatory overview of the press, or that's how it aims to do it. Now, of course, the issue there is that is that what one government of the day establishes by a royal charter, another government of the day could change at any time. There is the opportunity for executive fiat there. So you'd want something that would that would be separate from the the cha- changes in political climate that would be outside of that and would follow a particular standard and not necessarily be the bully pulpit of a particular political organization. I have a different take on this. If you compare the U.S. with the U.K., well, one thing that the, in the United States have is you have constitutional protections. There is no such thing in the U.K. I do not believe that publications need to join any organization at all. There is a legal framework by which we operate today and which imposes responsibilities on us, which is the laws of libel, of data protection, contempt of court, which is the way you report court cases, and copyright law, which is sort of similar to the DMCA provisions that we have in the US. All of those things are more are stricter than, than they are in the US. So it's insanely expensive, of course, to get involved in a, a libel action, and that's for both sides. So you can see having cheaper arbitration ways of arbitration could be attractive for people who are who consider themselves to be victims of press abuse and do not have the monetary means to pursue a court case. Now, the proposed solution, which is enforced arbitration through a regulator is something that has the unintended consequence is that it's not just the weak that, uh, and people that have been think they've been traduced by the press it's the strong and powerful and the corporations that will use this mechanism to prevent stories getting out into the open so how that works is that, for example, we are a small publication. Yeah, so you know, working in a uh, with a large website, we publish stories all the time that people don't want us to write about. You know, we write about companies' technology not working. We write about job cuts, employment disputes, outages. We write about crime. We have people and companies coming to us all the time trying to get us to stop writing those stories, to demanding that we don't write those stories by sending us legal letters, 
We even have things like the reputation management consultants trying to weasel their way in for us to remove articles. Imagine what a reputation management consultant would do for a very, very large business. They would be forcing you to go down the arbitration routes before you wrote the story. It's a chilling effect. Yeah, and uh, obviously, you know, for them, it's it's a win-win because if they know they're not going to have to, even if they lose, they're not going to have to pay for uh, any of the court costs. They can just go into this and claim that what it, putting these sort of spurious lawsuits or, or objections toward the publication, knowing that you know, hey, it, it doesn't, it's not going to hurt us if we do this. It, it'll actually benefit us because we'll actually be able to prevent or discourage publication from going down this route and writing a particular type of story? It's completely, it removes moral hazard. Uh, so uh, you've summed that up perfectly, Michael. So is the public at large sort of aware of this perspective? You know, I, you know from where we sit, we always hear about all these negative stories around what the British tabloids do and how you know invasive they are. And one could understand an environment that would get somebody to, we need to put something up to sort of stop this sort of invasion of, of privacy beyond what would be normally expected for a publication. You could, you could sort of see that a rationale for, for doing it, but once you create something like that, then there are all these other consequences that occur. Is the public aware of this? No, they're not. And do they care? Not really. First of all, it's hypothetical until it happens. Secondly, is that if it does happen, no one's going to know what didn't get published. And the chattering classes, it could be, it's a small, it's of interest. There is, you know, plenty of people have registered their opinions with the government about, you know, seeking to have Section 40 dropped. But, you know, the chattering classes in the UK, it's all about Brexit and Donald Trump, not about press freedom. I mean, journalism in the UK, uh, compared to America, journalism is a trade, not a profession. And it has always thought of as slightly disreputable. The actions of some of the major tabloids papers in the UK, no, I suppose the equivalents would be New York Post and National Enquirer, the kind of things that they do, and not necessarily much worse, with the, the big exception of this phone hacking scandal. Those publications, it comes down to hard cases make bad law. They have been reined in a lot by, for all sorts of reasons. The news of the world in the wake of uh, the Millie Dowler revelation was closed down by Murdoch. They've been sued to um, here and back by celebrities who have had to pay out millions of pounds. They're not going to do this again. It's just not worth it. And of course, we're in an environment where publications everywhere are slimming down because of the impact of the internet. So the ability to do expensive, invasive things is accordingly reduced. Well, and even then you have stuff which is that within the EU, there are privacy laws within Europe. Um, there's not really a law of priv- laws of privacy in the UK. 
which people view. So, for example, there was the Duchess of Cambridge was somebody took pictures of her sunbathing topless, went around selling those. There is now up in court in France. So there is. These are just ordinary legal um, tactics that people pursue. So I guess what you're mm. saying is that you feel that with the copyright law, the libel law, the, this privacy law that you described that's not in Britain but is in, in the rest of Europe, there's enough legal precedent out there to protect the someone who may be slighted by an action of uh, a publication as opposed to this, which the downside of it is the negative thing is that it's it's preemptive. And actually, as you said, a chilling effect that it would prevent uh, news outlets from actually you know, maybe pursuing a story about, you know, maybe there's a corporation that's polluting a, a river or something and, you know, not pursuing that story because the corporation has the ability to file this lawsuit, which has a chilling effect, which, you know, it makes it so that even if that they lose the lawsuit, that it's going to cost the publication so much money, it's going to prevent them, it, it put them out of business or, or it will dissuade them that it's better for them not to write that type of story. I agree with you with one caveat. So okay. the rich and powerful and the corp and corporations, what you say is absolutely correct. And I mean, if Section 40 comes in, the rich and powerful will be able to use it to, to their own ends. So, for example, the Sunday Times, which broke the story of Lance Armstrong's um, drug taking after years and years of investigation said they simply wouldn't be writing this um, to, under such a, an environment. Libel is, uh, uh, actions are insanely expensive for publications. That's for large publications, small publications. Just the, we're not talking about the damages, which talking about to get something to court and it's thousands and thousands of pounds a day in court time. This is not a issue for the rich. It is an issue for small publications, but it's also an issue for people, everyday people who have been caught up somehow, who are aggrieved. Now, a lot of people in my experience, they are aggrieved have no right to be aggrieved. But there are people who have been badly treated uh, for whatever reason, and having some form of arbitration, some mechanism by which they can have their complaints reviewed is a reasonable thing. Now, that could be newspapers, like the Financial Times and The Guardian have readers, editors. They actually do it themselves. They have boards, they have panels. You can see a large organization is capable of doing this themselves. For us, you know, if we, ha we get complaints, not very often from people, it's, much, it's usually in a private capacity, that is, it's people who work in their industry capacity. We do our best to be fair writing about them in the first place and we try our best to to consider uh, their complaints um, and if now if that doesn't work for them right now if, uh, if it's I don't know, let's say a, a sales manager who's been dismissed it is not reasonable for him to 
go and, and conduct a libel case. So the problem that Leveson identified is a real problem. But the solution is the proverbial sledgehammer to crack the nut. Okay. So now where are we going from here? What is the register doing at this point or can it do anything? Well, what's happened is um, it's actually moved beyond um, the likes of us and for people at large. What's happened is a group of big publishing houses filed this week for judicial review. Their argument is that that the the way that the press regulator Impress was made an official regulator was wrong in law. And it's been going to be tied up. This is going to be tied up in the courts for very many months. So we're now on the basis of the intersection of Parliament, government, and the high courts of the UK. That's where we're at at the moment. So it is, is a, that would be a typically American court. It, they're suing. <laughs> Okay. Well, now, does that, does that mean that the Section 40 isn't enacted while this review is going on? Section 40 is not enacted. The, the Sword of Damocles? Is it's the a lying over the in industry like the Sword of Damocles. Okay. It is not enacted. So whether it will be enacted is another issue right now, but the, the press collectively is fighting I wouldn't say it's a real guard action. They've taken the aggressive response with this week's news. Well, that's good. That's good. Drew, thank you very much for explaining this to us. This is really kind of a fascinating situation, sort of a peek into a different country's approach to press freedom and the difficulties that we all face in, in trying to protect those rights. Michael, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me. Next time on It's All Journalism. I was having sort of this minor crisis, like existential crisis, because I was like, I guess I'd jump ship and go into PR because that's what, you know, a lot of newspaper journalists have to do because, you know, you're always struggling financially. And, and that was a depressing thought. And so while I was doing that, I was, you know, reading Cracked a lot, but I was also freelancing for them, which is why I was approached about this position. And so that's so amazing to me. And also comedy was sort of my go-to. It was my um, outlet, like a creative outlet, entertainment outlet. And I cannot believe that I was approached with this job that was like, hey, you know, this career that you've had in journalism that you love, do you want to keep doing that? But do you want to do that in a very unconventional way? And do you want to do that with a lot more humor? And so that was what the position was presented as. And that's what it's been. And it's been just such a blast. In our next podcast, I talked to Sandra Sorensen, a classically trained journalist with a strong comedy background, who is now an editor at Crack.com. We talk about comedy, covering the courts, and the episode is also a preview of an upcoming podcast involving a legend in alternative journalism. More about that next episode. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. 
Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.